I'll ask the rest of you to open with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We have been working our way verse by verse through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most well-known speech that Jesus ever gave, the most well-known sermon containing some of the most well-known teachings of Jesus in all of Scripture. And as we've been working our way through chapter 5, we have seen that one of the primary purpose that Jesus has in this sermon is really to demonstrate to us what true righteousness looks like. That is, the righteousness of the kingdom rather than the righteousness of the world. You see, we have a tendency as, as in our humanity, we have a tendency to want to build ourselves up, to think that we are better than we really are. We we tend to like to look around the people around us and, and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person and I'm not as bad as that person, but ultimately, it's not about other people. And so Jesus is trying in this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, He is, he is painting a picture of what genuine righteousness before God looks like. It's, it's not something that's found merely in, in our efforts, it is found rather in the submission to a holy God as we trust in His grace and mercy. He begins in the beginning of chapter 5 with, with the Beatitudes and paints us a picture of, of the, a kingdom of righteousness for those who are pleasing in the Lord's sight. You know, all of the blessed are, that means to have the Lord's favor resting upon you. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are those whom find favor in God's sight because they are resting in Him, not in a righteousness of their own, but in His righteousness. And so that, that description moving out of the Beatitudes, um, Jesus immediately begins to relate that teaching to His law. You see, a lot of people thought as Jesus came on the scene that He was changing things up, that He was giving a new direction, that He was teaching something new, um, a new way of, of, of getting to God. And they wanted to hear Him, they wanted to see what He had to say, because it sounded like to them, to a lot of them, that He was replacing the, the, their understanding of the Old Testament Scripture and giving them something new. And really, Jesus is coming along and He's saying, I'm not giving you something new. I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to show you what the law really was there for. And He goes on to compare His ministry to those that had been the religious teachers of Israel. And from verse 27 on through the end of chapter 5, Jesus makes these comparisons between what they have heard said and then what He says. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And I want to just very briefly kind of walk, uh, run, give a summary rather of where we've been to this point from verse 27 on through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to conclude with a reading at the end of the chapter. But he says there in verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Moving on to verse 31, it was said, excuse me, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. 
Verse 33, again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond this is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so Jesus is setting up this comparison between what had been taught and what the actual purpose of God's law, and then he comes to the the culminating statement concerning the law of God and what true righteousness is in verse 48. And this is where we'll be focusing our attention this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, the Lord Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your instruction, that we may come to the end of ourselves, submit to your sovereignty, and receive of your grace, that you may be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In this brief proclamation in verse 48, the Lord Jesus provides tremendous insight into the truth surrounding God's standard of righteousness. And I want to share with you this morning five truths about God's standard of righteousness that come out of this verse. First of all, I want you to understand that this standard of righteousness is a purposeful standard. It is a purposeful standard. You see that word beginning of verse 48, therefore. There's a little a little hint in And when you're coming to the Scripture and you're looking at Bible interpretation, whenever you see that little word, therefore, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? It is is a connecting word. It tells us of those, it it connects those previous discussions with a primary direction. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's he's linking back all of the contrast and the misapplications and the misunderstandings of God's Word that He had been exposing in order that He might show that what he has been telling them all along is that the primary purpose of the law is to help us to understand that God's standard is perfection. That he demands perfection. That is the purpose for which he is giving us this instruction. He says, yes, you've, you've heard all what the religious leaders have been teaching you your whole life, but what they've done is they've reduced God's law to a set of manageable rules in which they're trying to follow to in order to hold themselves up as righteous. And he says, there is no righteousness in and of yourselves. You cannot be good enough. When we're told throughout this passage that we just looked at, we're told that anger held in our heart is the same as committing murder, that lust in our minds is equal to committing adultery, that anything less than complete honesty and integrity in our word is the same as lying to God, that our ideas of personal justice are contrary to the gospel, and that we must love those who stand opposed to us 
And the whole purpose of all of that is for us to recognize the weaknesses within ourselves so that we don't try to lift ourselves up before God. So that we don't try to make ourselves to be the standard by which we're judged, but rather to look to Christ as our standard. The therefore that Jesus begins with points us back to those false teachings and to the clarity with which he brings to it to help reveal the hardness in our heart, the weakness that we contain, and our need for something outside of ourselves to make us acceptable to God. Jesus provides the therefore, in essence, to say, because you've misunderstood so much of the specific applications of God's Word, because you've because the, the religious leaders have missed out on, on bringing you to a point of submission before the Holy Father. He says, I don't want you to miss the big picture. So think about all of these things that I've just told you and understand that the Father's standard for righteousness is perfection. It is a simple standard revealed through God's law to transcend every circumstance. It is a purposeful standard, and it is a precise standard. This is the second truth I want you to see in this text, that it is a precise standard. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect. How many perfect people do we have in here this morning? We all recognize that reality. We recognize our imperfection. Perfection, but perfection represents the absolute precision of God's standard. Nothing less than perfection will suffice to be pleasing in His sight. A lot of times when we're uh, trying to engage people in gospel conversations, one of the questions that we'll ask them is, say, what does it take or what do you believe that it takes for a person to get into heaven? Now, answers vary across the board. Some of them will, will say, you know, well, you have to believe in Jesus, and you have to go to church, and you have to, you know, and you have to be obedient to the Word. And, and other people will just say, well, you know, you just need to try and be a good person and just try to, to you know, care for others and to do good things. And, but the point is, you can never be good enough. And when we, when we have these conversations, a lot of times we'll engage people that, that talk about good works and being obedient and being good. You'll ask them and say, well, how good is good enough? How obedient do you have to be? And the reality is, is they all come back to the recognition and the reality that they haven't been as good as they could be. They haven't obeyed as much as they could have. But yet they fail to recognize that their disobedience and their failure to be as good as they could be, they fail to recognize how bad that really is. People readily will recognize they're not perfect. When you talk to people and you try to share the gospel with them and, and, and you'll engage them and, and with these questions and talk to them, and they'll say, well, yeah, well, nobody's perfect. And so what they and and because they accept that nobody's perfect, they accept their own imperfections. What they want to do is they want to lessen God's standard, because they say, well, since nobody's perfect, God must make a way for us to be accepted into His presence apart from perfection, because nobody's perfect, nobody can get there. So God can't possibly hold us to that standard. But what does Jesus say? You are to be perfect. 
That's the standard. It's, it's nothing less than that. It's a, it's a precise standard that God has given to us. And, and we know, we recognize our failings. We recognize that we haven't done those things. And, and, and the problem is stated to us clearly in Scripture. You know, we, we know that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point becomes guilty of all of it. So even if we're really good at trying to keep God's law, but we fail in one part of it, we violated the whole thing. Well, Jesus just got finished telling us in this whole passage here all the ways we violated God's law. We've had anger in our hearts, so we're guilty of murder. We've looked at lust with, with other, with, towards another person, so we're guilty of adultery. We haven't kept our word, so we're, we're liars. And we're convicted by those realities. We've all fallen short, Romans 3.23 We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. That there is a, a separation between us and God because of our sinfulness. We have failed to live up to the standard, the precise standard of perfection. He says this is the standard by which you may enter in to heaven. You know, when you... If you remember going to, the, going to the fair or going to an amusement park, and a lot of times, especially as little kids, you know, you come up to the rides and they have these signs that say you must be this tall to ride, right? That's, that's the standard that you have to meet to get on the ride, right? What if you don't meet that standard? You can't get on the ride. Jesus says the standard by which you have to meet to get into heaven is perfection. And apart from perfection, you can't get in. So how can anybody get in? Well, we're going to get there in just a minute, but let's continue on with, with the discussion at hand. Because we've seen that it is, it is a purposeful standard. We've seen that it is a precise standard, but it is also it is a patterned standard. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as what? As your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is perfection because God himself is perfect. You see, when God created everything, he created everything in perfection, right? God created, you go through the Genesis account of creation and, and those first six days, and, and God's creating, and he said, and, and at the end of the first day, and it, was very, and it was good, and the second day, and it was good, and the third day, and it was good. And you get to the end of the sixth day, and God looked, and he said, it is very good. He looked at all of creation, it was, it was perfect. And Adam and Eve, the first human beings to walk the earth, Guess what? They walked the earth in the presence of God. They walked together with God. They spoke with God. They were able to dwell in His presence because they were perfect. They were perfect beings. And God gave them one command. Just one thing. He says, I've given you everything you need to live. I've given you everything you need to eat. I've given you every protection that you could possibly want. I've given you everything that you could possibly ever need. He says, but there's just one thing I don't want you to do. He says, there's one particular tree out there in the midst of the garden. He says, don't eat from that tree. Everything else is yours. And you, you know what happened, right? They ate from the tree, right? I mean, they broke God's command. And God had warned Adam, he said, in the day that you disobey my command, you will surely die. Right? So what happened? Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit, they eat the fruit, 
and God, and God comes looking for them, right? God comes looking for them, and what do they do? They hide. They run and hide. Because in our sinful state, our tendency when confronted with the holiness of God and in recognition of our own sin is to flee from the presence of God. And yet God comes looking for them, and, they, and he calls out to them, and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we hid ourselves because we were naked and ashamed. And God calls them out on their sin. And they don't die physically that day. But they are cast out of the presence of God. And so they become spiritually dead. Spiritual death is the separation from the presence of God. It is the reality with which every human person born after the time of Adam has experienced. Spiritual death. Separation from the presence of God. They would die. Eventually, they would die physically. Death began to take hold of them in a physical way in the day they offended God. And then ultimately, if something wasn't done to take care of the offense against God, they would have died ultimately in eternal separation from God. That is the standard which God established in creation because His perfection, His holiness, His purity cannot be violated. Separation between us and God exists because of our imperfection. Notice he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The fact that he refers to him as our heavenly Father emphasizes the separation that exists between us. He is in heaven and we are on earth. And God cannot in his perfect holiness allow sin to dwell continually in his presence. Ezra chapter 9, 15 captures this, re- this reality for us. Ezra says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left and escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. God's holiness demands justice against sin. And sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. You see, the problem came because we changed, not because God changed. The Lord told Malachi, he says, I am the Lord, I change not. He is, he is perfect, he has always been perfect, and he always will be perfect. And his standard of perfection is revealed to us not only in the things which were written about him and concerning him to us in the Old Testament, but his perfection also is manifest to us as a pattern for us to follow in the person of Jesus Christ. When God became a man, he took on human flesh, he dwelt on the earth, he took on the weakness of humanity, he experienced hunger. He experienced tiredness. He experienced what it meant to be sore. He experienced what it meant to have the weaknesses of humanity. Yet, in the totality of his life, he never, he never disobeyed his father. He never failed to keep 
the ordinances of God. He never failed to do what God had told him he must do. And he did this for two reasons. He did it, one, so that he could be that perfect sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. But he also did it to be an example for us as to what perfection looks like to what it means to be submitted to the will of the Father and to be obedient to the will of the Father and to understand that no matter what happens, we can trust in His will and His purpose. Christ is our ultimate example. He is the pattern of perfection that we are meant to follow in His footsteps. He says Himself, come, follow me. He submitted Himself to the Father even unto the point of death. And yet God even worked through that to glorify His name. Jesus' great example is captured for us in, chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through eight. It says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is, be like Jesus was. He says, Who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with a God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the example of humility and obedience and perfection given to us so that we might pursue perfection. Now, understand, we're not God's standard is perfection, right? We've already established we've already fallen short, right? His purpose of having there's a purpose in having that standard so that we might recognize our need for something outside of ourselves. He's demonstrated what perfection looks like through his son Jesus Christ and he says, "Listen, follow him." But we're still in need of recognizing our own weakness and our own failures. You see, because this standard that he's given to us, not only is it purposeful and not only, <clears throat> excuse me, is it precise and, and is it patterned, but it's also personal. Go back to the beginning of verse 48. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect. It's a very personal thing. We have a tendency in, in the church and, well, even in, in just in society at large, when we begin to talk about Scripture and we begin to talk about Christ and, and what He's done and we talk about God's standard and we talk about even talking about sin and sacrifice and we talk about what Christ has done, but we talk about it in a very general sense. We talk about it some, oftentimes a very disassociated sense. It's like we know that Christ died for the sins of the world, so... I accept that, and so I must be okay. Because Christ came to die for sinners. I'm a sinner, so I'm good. But we don't ever deal with our sin. We don't ever recognize that it's our sin that has separated us personally from God, and that God is holding us individually accountable. There's not just some blanket, blanket of grace that's spread over the whole world that when Christ died, everybody gets to go to heaven. That's not the way it works. That's why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We have to recognize our personal sin, and we have to come to Him for salvation. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's talking about your sin. And it's talking about my sin. Not just sin in a, as a general principle. When we 
We're being shown that our sins, our mistakes, our weaknesses that are manifested in the pursuit of our own personal desires, all of these are offenses to a just and holy God. And He holds us accountable. Until you come to the place of applying God's standard to yourself, you cannot be saved. You have to recognize that you have offended God. You have to understand that the only thing that you deserve in accordance with God's word and justice is judgment. That is what we deserve. And until you get to that point, you'll never truly surrender to the grace which is offered through Jesus Christ. But grace is offered. God's standard of perfection is personal. It is precise, it is patterned, it is purposeful. And I think we all recognize it's impossible. It is an impossible standard. We can't get there on our own. But that is exactly the point. The point that Jesus is making in telling us that God's standard is perfection is to help us to come to the end of ourselves so that we might trust fully in Him. You go all the way back to the Beatitudes and where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? That's the person who has come to the end of themselves. They've recognized their separation from God and they're trusting only in His grace and mercy. That's where we need to be. That's where we come to this reality of recognizing that We in ourselves are not sufficient. We will never be sufficient. And our only hope is for God to act on our behalf. That's it. He is our only hope. And that's why Jesus came. He came, and we talked about it. He came, and he took on the form of a man. He came in in, in perfection so that he might be the perfect sacrifice in order that he might pay for sins. Well, how does that work? In some mysterious way at the cross, God took the sins of people and he put put them on Christ and he took the righteousness and the perfections of Christ and he put it on the account of the people who would believe in him. And And this is the way that salvation comes about. That through faith, In Christ, our sins are placed on Him at the cross and His righteousness is given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him, that is Jesus Christ, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the standard of perfection, it is impossible for any normal human being. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He was perfection, and His perfection is given to us by faith. And it is by faith that we embrace the grace of God, that we receive forgiveness, and we receive the perfection that was on His account, and it is given to us in order that He might represent us before the Father and that we are made acceptable in Him. And then having been made acceptable in Him, We are called to be like Him. 
so that others also might know him through our testimony. Every aspect of the law that had been misunderstood and misapplied, Jesus uses to help us to understand that the righteousness of the world and the righteousness of the kingdom are two very different things. You may look like a good and upright person compared to some other people, but those other people aren't the standard. Christ is the standard that God uses to judge each person. And apart from His perfection, we will continually fall short. We must recognize the bankruptcy of our own spiritual condition and rest fully on the Lord's grace and mercy in order that we might receive that grace and mercy and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world besides Christianity establishes and attempts to establish the way by which we can be made acceptable to God. They say, these are the things that you need to do to be accepted by God. Christianity says, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't get there. Only by God working on your behalf. And Christianity is the only faith in the world by which God pursues us, not us trying to get to Him. Only Christianity demonstrates the love that God has for us as creatures created in His image and that He would take on human flesh and offer Himself in our place to take the punishment that we deserve to restore a relationship that we messed up. That is the wonder and the beauty of God's grace. It is by grace that we are saved. Through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. If you're sensing this morning a burden for your sin and have never truly surrendered yourself to God, to Christ, I want you to know that God is willing to receive all who call upon Him in faith. And He's willing to receive you just as you are. He doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up. You can't. None of us are perfect. None of us ever will be perfect. But we're pers- for those of us that know Him, we're pursuing perfection. We're looking at the pattern left out for us by Jesus Christ, and we're pursuing that we might be holy, that we might be pleasing in His sight. But if you've never received that grace of salvation, you cannot, you cannot achieve it on your own. You need His grace. There is one standard. God's standard. And that standard is perfection. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you this morning. And Lord, I recognize that this word It's challenging to so many of us because, Father, it just, it attacks our pride, it attacks our self-worth, it attacks our sense of accomplishment. 
But Lord, that's precisely the point. Father, we have to recognize that our only means of being accepted by you, our only means of knowing the fullness of your grace and the wonder of your love and the the fullness, Father, of the hope of all eternity rests solely with you. And that if you don't act on our behalf, that we are hopeless. Lord, I pray that you would touch hearts this morning. I pray, Father, that you would bring bring us to the end of ourselves. Father, whether we need your forgiveness for the first time, in which we can enter into a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would save someone this morning, that you would touch their heart and bring them to that point of surrender, that point of repentance, that you would grant them faith to believe. But Father, I also know for so many of us in here that we have known you throughout our lives and throughout the years. And Father, we have sometimes taken for granted what it means to pursue the pattern that you've left for us and what it means for us to be holy as representatives of you to the world. Father, we pursue holiness not so that we can be made much of, but so that we can point people to the reality of who you are. Father, your justice is sure. but so is your forgiveness. For all who come to you in faith, your word promises that you will in no way turn them away from you. And not only, Father, will you, do you gladly receive those who trust in you for salvation, Father, but you preserve them to the end. Your word tells us that when you begin a good work in us, that you will see it through to the end. That those who obey your voice, that belong to you as your children, Father, that they cannot be taken away from you. So Lord, we thank you for the abundance of grace which is proclaimed to us through your word. And for the relief that comes with realizing that we don't have to earn your favor. But we must rest in Christ and then honor Him in loving obedience. Lord, continue to work among us to draw us to Yourself that we might be transformed by Your grace for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.